Well, good morning, church. Good morning, Balcony, and good morning, Coldwater. Great to see you, or great to be seen by you, and uh, we are excited to be here together with the opportunity to open the Word. So I would invite you to do that if you have a Bible with you to Acts 14, verse 19. That's on page 923 if you're making use of those pew Bibles in front of you. We, uh, we're coming to the end of our uh, story about Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. I mentioned last week there's a bit of a pattern. I'm sure you've already spotted it, but that pattern continues on. I quoted R.C. Sproul saying, Everywhere the apostles went, we see God working mightily, bringing uh, conversions from both Jews and Gentiles. In the midst of the bold preaching, divisions occurred, oppositions arose, and hostility set in. And the apostles were barely able on very many occasions to escape with their lives. So that's the basic pattern. Uh, We've got the apostles going in, we've got the gospel being preached, and we have a variety of reactions. And so rather than preaching the same sermon 10 Sundays in a row, uh, I mentioned last week that from here on in, as we see these stories, as we see uh, different cities being visited in the first and second and third missionary journeys, we'd focus rather narrowly on the unique details that Luke includes in each story. In the story that hopefully you have open before you now in Acts 14, we see Paul and Barnabas kind of coming to the end of the line, as it were. If you were to plot out their journey uh, on a map or if you were to try to draw it on a napkin, uh, it kind of looks like a horseshoe. They start uh, here in Antioch of Syria. They go uh, south and west and then north and then east. So there's your horseshoe. And then when they get to the end of the line, instead of crossing over and going back to Antioch and Syria and completing the circle... Uh, Instead, they stop, and they turn around, and they go all the way back, visiting every city and town they had been in before, and the Bible says, appointing elders in every town. That's a remarkable statement, because, of course, if you plot this out, and you write little dates or supposed durations beside each of these visits, you realize some of the people on this journey had only been Christians for a couple of weeks or perhaps months at most. And so we wonder, why didn't Paul wait? Uh, Why was he in such a hurry? Why why didn't he leave a a year or two or ten for some truly mature and stable candidates to emerge? Why did he feel so strongly that every local church needs to have elders? And by the way, note the S on the end of that word. In not a single town do we see the Apostle Paul appointing an elder. It's always elders. In every town, they appointed in every church a plurality of congregational leaders. That's a pretty significant detail, and it is on that detail that we're going to focus our attention today. So hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church... With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
If, uh, if you weren't here last week or if you're popping into this story, it might be helpful just to take a minute and remember how we got here to this point in the story. Plus, you probably have to do that anytime a paragraph begins with the word but. Uh, that indicates that something has changed in direction here. And, uh, and that's exactly what is going on in this story. If you were here last week, you remember that uh, their visit to Lystra, Paul and Barnabas' visit to Lystra, was an explosive visit. Uh, there was a, a man who was healed by God's grace, a man who had been lame from birth. And the citizens of that city who had no Jewish background, like we've often seen before, they had, they had no synagogue, so they had, these were not people who were raised on Bible stories. They completely misinterpreted this miracle. They thought it meant that Paul and Barnabas were gods, specifically that they were Zeus and Hermes, who had been known in Greek mythology to occasionally take on human form and visit their people, sort of to test their character and loyalty. Anyway, the whole thing went sideways fast. It was a huge mess, and the apostles were only barely able to restrain the people from offering worship and sacrifice to them. But as we see here, the mood of a pagan city can turn on a dime. And Jews from other cities arrived and began to persuade the crowds against the apostles such that they stoned the apostle Paul and dragged him out of the city and left him for dead. And then the disciples gathered around Paul. Presumably they prayed for him. And miraculously he rose up and went back into the city. Now we could probably preach on that, right? What to do when you get stoned? That's probably not the right title, but uh, we'd come up with something better than that. But, you know, what do you do when you face serious opposition? Well, what did Paul do? He went right back into the city. Uh, That's incredible. But as spectacular as that little detail is, it's actually just a repetition of the general pattern that we've already seen. The apostles are preaching the gospel, and they're facing a variety of reactions. And some of those reactions are hostile and even violent, and that happens again here in Lystra. Lystra. So Paul and Barnabas move on, but this time they do something interesting. They go one city forward, and then they stop, turn around, and they go all the way back, uh, as I mentioned, appointing elders in every town. That's the piece we haven't seen before. We've seen all this other stuff before. We've seen preaching. We've seen people get converted. We've seen people become hostile. Uh, we've seen persecution. We've even seen miracles before. But this is new. Look, at, look again at verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every town, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. All right, as I said, that's a remarkable detail. Some of these people would have been Christians for what? Four weeks maybe? Six weeks tops? How mature could they be? Right? It's interesting. You know, Paul in in another place talks about how it's important not to uh, appoint new believers, immature folks to positions of leadership, lest they become conceited. Well, obviously, whatever he means by, you know, new is not necessarily what we mean by new. This is is a remarkable detail. How mature can these people be? How established are they really? This feels risky. And yet Paul and Barnabas are convinced that absolutely every local church needs to have a plurality of elders if they are to survive. So why is that? That's, that's what I want to look at this morning. To, to answer that question, we'll zoom out. We'll kind of look at the book of Acts as a whole, but then we'll also dip into some of what the apostles said in their various epistles about the eldership. So let's get into that. The question is, why are elders essential 
in the life of the local church? I think the first part of the answer has got to be because the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Pillar and a buttress. Those are two ways kind of saying the same thing, overlapping metaphors. We are kind of protecting, we are lifting up the truth. Paul says that in 1 Timothy 3.15, right after the section where he outlines the criteria for the eldership. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul says, I want to write all this stuff down so that in, in the event that I am delayed, you can do this anyway because it's got to be done. We've got to have elders in the church because the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. That's interesting. That's the job, obviously, to lift up, to, to preserve, and to proclaim the truth, the, the truth about who God is and, and who we are as human beings and how God has saved us through the person and work of Christ. That's the job. And so somebody has to be responsible for holding us accountable to that, to keeping us on track with that. One of the things you notice as you read through the New Testament is how central the, the whole idea of preaching and teaching is to the church. I mean, there's no way around it. The, the church is word-y. The church is teach-y. And, and the church is still that way even today. You know, think of it. Is, it is somewhat weird that you are here. Uh, it is somewhat odd that you woke up early on a Sunday morning so that you could come and sit in a, in a large auditorium and listen to a 40-minute message. That is weird. None of your neighbors are doing that, right? They're, they're not waking up early on Sunday morning and going to the library to listen to a 40-minute lecture on 17th century Italian Renaissance sculpture. And yet here you are, gathered in this room, listening to a 40-minute message on a document that was written on another continent 2,000 years ago. What is wrong with you? Well, what is wrong with you is that you are a Christian, and Christians are wordy, teach-y, read-y people, and we always have been. Preserving and proclaiming a body of truth is essential to the mission and identity of the church, and it is central to the particular role and responsibility of the elders. If you compare the list of qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3 with the list of qualifications for deacons, deacons are another group of leaders or officers in the church, you'll notice there's a significant difference. And the difference is that an elder must be able to teach. Paul elaborates that on the largely parallel passage that we find in Titus. He talks to Titus about how to appoint elders as well. There he says an elder must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So it sounds like there's kind of two sides to this. There is a delivery side and there is a discernment side, right? Part of the job is to prepare and preach uh, messages and part of the job is to referee all the teaching that takes place in the church. And it looks like the elders, the early elders, took something of a divide-and-conquer approach. So 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, 
and the laborer deserves his wages. So in that passage, we learn two things. We learn that not all elders did the same thing. That's why we got the word especially there. Not all elders were involved in the preparation and delivery of messages. And we also learn that some elders were paid. So again, the bottom line is here, the early church devoted considerable time, attention, and resources to this whole teaching ministry thing to the point where some of the elders were actually full-time. That leads to the second reason why every local church needs a plurality of elders, because someone has to look after the money. Now, that doesn't sound very spiritual to us, but it actually is. If the church is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, then it's very important that we conduct ourselves with integrity and that we guard the reputation of the church, and there is no faster way to lose your reputation and integrity as a church than to be accused of financial mismanagement. And the early church understood that. They understood that if if you're going to have mission, and if you're going to have people on the payroll, and the early church did, one of the things that when you study church history and when you carefully read the New Testament documents, one of the things that surprises you is how many people they had on staff. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about how they had five teaching elders at the church in Antioch. That feels like a lot. There must have been a lot of teaching going on there. And then when you read 1 Timothy 5, you discover that uh, what church historians usually refer to as the order of women. It appears that very early on, the church employed a swath of older women, usually widows. They encouraged them, if you were an older woman, you know, Paul says younger women, better to remarry, but if you're an older woman and your husband dies, which of course happened very frequently in that culture, why not work for the church? Why not devote yourself to the Lord's work? We've got a lot of orphans to care for. Again, we know from church history that these old women would go around and they would collect up all the orphans uh, from the Roman slums, and the church would raise them. Well, that's a, that's a busy job. I'm not sure you're doing that with three hours of volunteer work a week, right? And so the, the, the church had mission, the church had staff, and, and therefore there needed to be some kind of process for handling the money because all that takes money. So there had to be procedures in place. And we see that. We actually see the genesis of that right in the stories we're reading. In Acts 11, 29 to 30, uh, the church in Antioch wanted to transfer funds to the church in Jerusalem because there was a famine that was somewhat localized. And so all of a sudden the output in Jerusalem was very high. They, they all of a sudden had more poor people to care for. And so the church in Antioch said, well, we, we need to transfer some funds so that they can manage that. And we see how they did that. Acts eleven twenty nine to 30 says, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability, ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. That's a good process. It's not a good idea to, to transfer funds or to entrust funds to a single individual. It's the same reason most churches have some kind of rule about two ushers need to be there to deposit the money. It's a good process. And then they handed that money off. These two delegates handed the money off to a plurality of elders for their oversight. And Paul adopted the same basic approach on his missionary travels. We're going to see later that in Paul's later travels, he began gathering up what came to be known as the Jerusalem Offering. Uh, Jerusalem continued to be a place where widows wanted to go and sort of retire, as it were, and where the poor gathered. It was the largest, in the, in the first generation, it was the largest and most fully functioning church. And so Christian poor from all over the empire would actually come and, and resettle in Jerusalem. So there was constantly a need for money to flow into the church in Jerusalem to handle this need. 
And so Paul was going around all the Gentile churches to gather up money. But in every case, he told these churches, appoint delegates who will go with the money. Because the last thing Paul needed was to be accused of mishandling the funds. And so he's kind of like, hey, I'm not touching it. You if, you, if you have an offering and you want to contribute, appoint two people to travel with that. Again, it's just good policy. And so what we're seeing here are principles, principles related to accountability, transparency, and competent stewardship. And wise churches will attend to these concerns in a way that's appropriate to their context. So our Presbyterian cousins, for example, have ruling elders and teaching elders because it wouldn't be appropriate for the elders who are drawing a salary to also be the ones in charge of the budget. It wouldn't make a lot of sense. Again, you could be accused of mismanagement if that was the case. And so similarly here at Cornerstone, we have elected elders and we have pastoral elders for the same reason. In our polity, the pastoral elders do not have control of the finances. The elected elders do. To state the matter plainly, I am a pastoral elder and therefore I do not have influence or control over the finances. I don't vote on the budget at board meetings. I am not a director of the corporation, to use CRA language. I wasn't even present at our final board meeting. I was actually at a meeting in Calgary. So if you have a question about the budget, that should be directed to an elected elder. My job as a pastoral elder is to speak into the process and to recommend biblical priorities. But it is the job of the elected elders to collect, steward, and distribute our common funds. So we're all elders, but we take primary responsibility for different aspects of the shared role. Does that make sense? So again, there are different ways that you could apply these principles in a local context, and there are different ways that you could divide up these tasks, but it's very important for churches to attend to these principles. And in our church, in our system, there is a role for you to play as the congregation in this process. When you come to the AGM next Monday, if you're a member of the church, I hope you're thinking about that and remembering that, not tomorrow night, but the Monday after that, you need to be thinking about all of what we're talking about this morning. In the providence of God, I kind of wanted to, as I looked and laid out the series as we walked through Acts, I kind of wanted to make sure we got to this message before the AGM. So that means either this Sunday or next Sunday. Because you need to know what your role is in the process. And, and in order to do your role, you need to know what the elders are supposed to do. So when you come to the AGM on Monday night, you're supposed to be thinking through these things. You're supposed to be asking the question, are, are these candidates theologically sound, for example, to, to go back to our first point? Are are they capable of teaching? Are they capable of refereeing? Are we electing elders who are strong enough to rebuke a small group leader who's straying from the boundaries of the Orthodox Christian faith? Or are we electing elders who are strong enough to rebuke a pastor in in the pulpit who is straying from the Christian faith? By the way, that's one of the reasons you'll notice that when a person is elected to the board of elders, they usually will give up any other responsibilities that would take them out of the sanctuary on a Sunday morning. Because literally, it's their job to sit and listen to the sermon and make sure it accords with the scriptures. So are you electing people who are capable of doing that? And then, you know, in line with this point that we're making here currently, are you electing a couple elders at least who can read a spreadsheet? Are you electing elders that you trust to handle the common funds? Are you electing elders 
that you believe can develop biblical priorities, spend money in a way that would be honoring to Jesus, and that's your job. It's all part of what an elder does, and it's your job to make sure that we have elders who can do that, that role. So every church needs a plurality of elders with a variety of gifts and capacities. All right, thirdly, every local church needs elders because there are fierce wolves who will try to infiltrate the church. Paul warns the elders of the church in Ephesus. We have this beautiful little story in Acts chapter 20. Paul's on his way somewhere, and he doesn't have time to visit the church for an extended visit, but he just says, listen, I'll just meet with the elders. So uh, he says, come and, come and meet me here, and they have this meeting, and he gives them kind of a, an urgent charge. It's wonderful. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves. The first people that elders need to lead are themselves. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the... By the way, just carefully notice there that an elder is an overseer. Those words are used interchangeably. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So Paul said in no uncertain terms that there will be people who will try to infiltrate the church for destructive and demonic purposes. And therefore, we're going to need elders who are strong enough to man the door. There's a really interesting article on um, the CNN website last week. I don't know if you saw it. It had the title, One of the Most Dangerous Hours in America is Now 11 O'Clock on Sunday Morning. I don't know if you know this. uh, There's been a huge uptick in church shootings in the United States. I'll tell you this, it's a rare thing now to go to a church in America and not see an armed security guard. Uh, And it's part of the culture shock, you know, as we as Canadians go down there. uh, You know, we as Canadians, I don't even know what we would throw at somebody in here. We'd just use a hardcover Bible, I guess. I don't know. Uh, So, so, I mean, some some of the differences obviously come down to culture and gun laws and not. But Guns are no guns. It is, it is interesting to observe, concerning to observe, that there have been several significant acts of violence at churches, and, and it's increasing at an alarming rate. And so CNN went around and was interviewing pastors and church security consultants. By the way, what a world we live in when you need church security consultants. One of the lines uh, from the article really jumped out at me. One of the people interviewed said that some of the danger has come about as a result of pedophiles who try to join church ministries that would put them into contact with children. We we can't be so naive as to not understand that's going on. If you're a pedophile, where do you want to go? You, You want to go either into the school system or into the church because that's where you can have access to children, right? That's a target rich environment. So whose job is it? to keep those people out. That's the job of the elders. They're the sheepdogs. It's funny, every time we talk about this, it feels like a disconnect. And, and that's partly our fault, because every church in the universe has a sign on their front lawn that says what? Everyone welcome. Ah. <laughs> we have that sign too, by the way, and I'm not making fun of, I'm not making fun of whoever rotates the signs, okay? I'm not, I'm not criticizing that. Because there's a sense in which that's true, right? Like tall people are welcome here, short people are welcome here, rich people are welcome here, poor people are welcome here. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth are welcome here. Amen? Okay. But let me state the obvious. 
a pedophile is not welcome to volunteer for VBS. Amen? And a heretic is not welcome to lead one of our small groups. Can you say amen to that? And an unsaved, unrepentant, rebellious person is not welcome at the Lord's table. Can you say amen to that? There are boundaries in the house of the Lord. And it is the job of the elders to police and enforce those boundaries. That's why our elected elders oversee the membership process. If you're on your way in, you know this, right? We've had a lot of new people come in in the last year or so. And so many of you, I know, are involved in the uh, membership process. And what, as part of that process, you've got to fill in some paperwork, et cetera, et cetera. But then a part of that process is two elders or, or, or an elder and, and spouse are going to come and interview you and ask you like wildly invasive questions because that's part of the process. It's their job to know who's coming in. It's their job to man the door, as it were. That's why our elected elders oversee our policies like plan to protect. They decide who can serve and in what capacity and under what conditions. And some people don't like that. They'll say, well, you know, you know me. I'm a great person. Let me down in the nursery. No. I'm afraid not. Like, we want a police check. There's a process for that. There has to be. And that's why our elected elders are the ones who pass the plates at communion time. Have you noticed that? It's their job to make sure that no one partakes in an unworthy manner. Okay, we don't talk about these things very often. It feels counterintuitive, but it is the job of the elders to do this because there are fast talkers and deceivers. There are wolves in sheep clothing. There are people who say they are Christians who are not and who have destructive purposes for trying to enter into the church of Jesus Christ. So until the Lord returns, every local church is going to need a plurality of strong, vigilant, resolute leaders. Fourthly, every church needs elders because in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Putting the emphasis there on the S, on the word elders. Now, some of what we've said so far about elders is unique to the Christian context, but a lot of what we believe about elders was actually lifted wholesale from the Jewish context. The Christian church didn't invent the concept of elders. Rather, they adopted and adapted. You, you probably noticed that if you're reading through the book of Acts. The first several mentions of the word elder are actually mentioned in the Jewish context. So Acts 4-5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Acts 6.12, I'm just picking a few. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. So those are our Jewish elders. And the church basically adopted, <clears throat> excuse me, adopted and modified the forms of the Jewish synagogue. The idea for this, of course, goes all the way back to Moses. Actually, it goes back, I suppose, better to say, to Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. You probably remember the story in the book of Exodus. Moses is, is doing everything himself. He's a one-man show. Uh, he's like that guy that, you know, you see in the parades, and he's got the, 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 I don't even know, the foot drum, and he's this, and the tambourine, and something in the, and he's doing it all. And Jethro comes to him and says, wow, like, what are you doing? This is not good. This is not good for you, and it's not good for the people. And so he says to them, or to Moses, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands 
of hundreds of fifties and of tens. Because no one leader, not even Moses, can effectively and safely lead an entire community of people. It takes a council of leaders. And that principle was turned into a principle of wisdom and is reflected as a principle of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no guidance, so people fall. So, I mean, we don't want no leaders. But then he says, okay, here's what you want. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So there's two things that are bad. No leadership and singular leadership. Isn't that interesting? And trust me. You don't want to go to a church where one person has all the authority. You don't want to go to a church where the senior pastor is also the chair of the board. You don't want to go to that church. That's not safe. Shepherding the flock of God is a massively complex undertaking. And every human being, I don't care how good they are, I don't care how wise they are, every human being has blind spots. And therefore, the wisest and safest approach is to have a plurality of leaders and a division of powers and responsibilities. Then fifthly and lastly, every church needs its own elders because people need to see the gospel lived out. Part of the job of an elder is to model and illustrate what the Christian life looks like. The Apostle Peter said that to his uh, his people. He said, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. By the way, isn't that interesting? Peter is an apostle and an elder. So all the apostles functioned as elders, but of course not all elders function as apostles. Right? But, but, you know, Peter was a shepherd. Remember, that's how Jesus restored Peter. He said, feed my sheep, right? So Peter says, listen, I understand the eldership as a shepherd. As, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So, so Pause. Here we're seeing some interesting stuff. I don't know if you care about this, but I want you to see it anyway. Elders, he's addressing elders, and he tells them to shepherd. That's actually the word from which we get pastor. Pastor is just the Latin word for shepherd, okay? So elders, shepherd, and in another passage, they're called overseers. So you've got all these kind of overlapping terms here, okay? I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So that's the job. Elders, pastor, and exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. All right, so the Bible does not say that you have to be perfect to be an elder. In that case, we would have exactly zero elders, right? You don't have to be perfect. And of course, remember, some of the people who are appointed as elders in the story that we're looking at this morning had been Christians for all of four weeks, right? So how mature were they, right? How how developed were they? All that amount of time can only tell you one thing, and it's really whether this person is legitimately saved or not. And so it's interesting, when you look at the criteria for elders as given by Paul in 1 Timothy 3, I've seen scholars say what's remarkable about that list is how unremarkable that list is. It's not about being a spiritual giant. It looks like it's just about being an actually saved person. So you don't have to be a spiritual giant. You just have to be living a life that is congruent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. New Testament scholar George Knight makes a similar point, commenting on Paul's use of the phrase above reproach, which he understands as a header 
for that entire list. He says, basically, an elder must be above accusation in any of these categories. Above accusation. Passing grade. Here's what he says. He says, by God's grace, the pattern of the bishop or overseer's life conforms to both the general and specific characteristics, and he is not objectively chargeable. He's not out of bounds in any of these areas. To be an elder, you need to be living a life that is within the boundaries of the Christian faith. You can't be outside the lines on anything because your job is to illustrate what the Christian life looks like. Not perfectly, but authentically. So, I mean, let's get down to brass tacks. So an elder needs to love his wife as Christ loves the church. Does that mean he has to be a perfect husband? Well, again, if it means he's got to be a perfect husband, we're going to have exactly zero people on the elders board. No, but what it means is he's got to love his wife as Christ loved the church. In that pattern, in that way. So he's got to be sacrificial. He's got to wash his wife in the water of the word, you know, as Paul fleshes that out in Ephesians 5. Okay. An elder needs to parent his kids in a way that reflects the biblical pattern. All right, what? What's the biblical pattern? Well, you know, Paul talks about how dads are not supposed to exasperate their children or provoke them to anger, but rather to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. All right, so dads have to have a have to have a bit of a developmental spirit. Can't can't ride too hard, but can't be too soft either, right? Got to love, teach, and correct in an authentically Christian manner. And then same thing for business practices. You, you ought to be able to review the, the tax records and talk to the employees at a, at a business, and there shouldn't be anything out of bounds there with respect to the conduct of, of this elder. Again, he doesn't have to be perfect. But if an elder is convicted of tax fraud, for example, you expect him to come off the board, right? You want to see that you're operating within the lines. Why? Why is all this important? Because we need to see this whole Jesus thing lived out. Christianity is not just a set of beliefs. It is a way. And so all of our elders, elected and pastoral, need to be able to say, as the Apostle Paul said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's a high call. It is a noble task. And it is a work of grace. Oh, God, help. Let me pray for us. I'm going to pray for our elders incoming. And I'm going to pray for us as a church in terms of the important work that we need to do a week from tomorrow night. So let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, what we see in Holy Scripture. We thank you for the, for the gift of the eldership. And Lord, I know for some that doesn't sound like a gift. We are raised in a culture that teaches us to despise all authority. And yet, Lord, uh, in your grace and in your goodness and in your wisdom, you know that we need authority. And so you've designed it. Lord, we all need to have the word pressed on us from the outside. We all need to have somebody telling us when we're swerving towards a rumble strip. Occasionally, Lord, we all need the shepherd's crook. And so, Lord, this is a good thing. It's a high bar, though, Lord. I identify with the Apostle Paul who said, who is sufficient for these things? Lord, certainly not in our own strength can we do anything that has been talked about this morning. We need your grace. We need your guidance. We need you to be leading the church through us. And so, Lord, uh, for all those coming in, 
Uh, I pray a, a prayer of, of blessing. I pray, Lord, that you would watch over them, that you would strengthen them. I pray, Lord, if there's anything rattly or wonky, uh, that you'd, you'd help them just this week to tighten that up. And then, Lord, for those who are taking a step off, in our polity, there's sort of an automatic rest every six years, and Lord, there's wisdom in that. So we pray for the, uh, the elders who are coming off. We pray that it would be restorative. Uh, we pray that you would fill up their gas tank again. We pray that they would be able to lean hard and, and extra into their family situation or into their business situation, which so often, uh, Lord, can, can sometimes get less attention. And so we pray uh, for that as well, for those rhythms. And then, Lord, for us as a church, I pray that we would do our due diligence, that we would visit the website and look up those profiles and pray and maybe even have a cup of coffee and do our due diligence so that we can ensure that we have the right leaders in place uh, for this congregation. Lord, you've entrusted great things to us. We don't want to fumble the hand off in this generation. So help us. Give us the wisdom. Give us the grace Give us the resolve to do that which is needed, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.